I am John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. I want to thank you for listening and joining us here on the program. Look, i got a special guest joining me this week. And you know, look, as we do more in this new year, I'm hoping to do more guest interviews. And to start, start off, well, kind of start off this year, I want to introduce my friend and my guest, Dr. Do I have to call you Dr.? No, oh, you don't have Well, to I'm going to do doctor. on the intro anyway. Dr. Keith Burrick, formerly a history professor at Canisius College, somebody who I've uh, actually I've had on the program before. So uh, I want to thank uh, Keith for joining me. And we are going to talk about his new book, but I want to also mention the, the, the book that I've had him on the show for before. He wrote a book called Thomas, The Thomas Indian School and the Irredeemable Children of New York. And it is really one of the first books that really delved specifically into the Thomas Indian School, which was a state-funded residential school on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation, a place that I call home. And he, he's, he, he did a remarkable job talking about the transition, how what started out by many accounts uh, with good intentions turned into what we kind of know as that really abusive system of indoctrination and assimilation that, that even the state, both state and federally funded uh, residential schools came to be known as, including on the U.S. and the Canadian side. But what I want to talk to him today about is his new book, and that book is We Remain. And what caught me about this title is that the subtitle is it's We Remain, Race, Racism, and the Story of the American Indian. And this is what I think is an important book, if for no other reason, because I don't know of any other published book that describes the native experience as that of a as that of an experience of racism, and as many of you who've listened to this program know, that has been kind of one of my tasks. It's been one of my one of the burdens that I've taken on, which is to explain that while history suggests that somehow it was just a naturally occurring uh, process for native people to be again, wiped out, to be moved off of our homelands, to be abused in this way, uh, it's, it never is, it gets characterized as white supremacy having a role in it and that racism having a role in it. So when, when Keith first told me about uh, his book and I learned the title, um, I couldn't wait to get, get my hands on it. So uh, Keith, you were, you were kind enough to give me a, an electronic version first. Yes. And, uh, and then I ordered one on Amazon. But I'm hoping that people will get this book. So, so Keith, please do uh, introduce yourself, um, and we'll get into the book and what I think is a conversation that, uh, that needs to be had about the role that racism continues to play with, with Native people in our experience. Yeah, I, um, uh, first of all, it's not a, a history textbook. It's not intended to be one where, you know, you name names, dates, uh, battles, uh, laws, and so on, all listed in chronological order. Uh, it's, it's more, as I said, a story, uh, a story that I try to tell in a number of ways. There are, a, I talk about battles and 
all the things that go, went into the uh, oppression and uh, suppression and exploitation and, and ultimately almost extermination of Indians. I'd rather, I, I wanted it to be more almost as an experiment, something that uh, would appeal to a much broader audience than, say, uh, you might use in a classroom. Uh, you wouldn't want to use this in a high school classroom or even a, a college history text, uh, textbook. You wanted it to, I wanted it to be something that was uh, appealed to a broader audience who really don't know much about Native Americans and certainly not the role of racism in uh, what happened to, to Native Americans. And actually, uh, it's also meant for uh, Natives who very often don't know much about their own history. Well, and, and certainly we don't know the shared history of the broader population of Native people coast to coast, for yeah. instance. I mean, many of us have been very insular in terms of, you know, our, the, our specific nations, sometimes our, our specific communities. And there isn't a, I mean, there are some efforts, and of course social media and modern technology allows us to uh, communicate in ways that we, we haven't been able to do in the past. But, but you're right, I think the idea of, of telling the story and, and, and it's almost as if your, your title, We Remain, uh, is, is, is in spite of race, racism and, right. and, the, and, our, and our story. I mean, the fact that, that we are still here, what I appreciated was that was part of your telling here. Your telling here isn't just these are the terrible things that happen, but these are the terrible things that happen, and the people still persevere. Yes, and, and that's one of the, the points. that, And I, I took that really from the campaign on, on many reservations this year, or the last couple years campaign, we remain. Right. And um, that's one of the things that I found to be true. And I think just to give you, a, give the listeners a, a brief history, uh, I've been working on reservations for 25 years or so all across America. And um, I, I, at, I started out like a, a, a white guy. I didn't know what I was getting into. Like a tourist. Uh, yeah, a tourist yeah. in many ways. And I found people very uh, helpful and generous and uh, welcoming. But I didn't really understand what was going on in their lives and what was going on in reservations. It took me a while. And one of the things that I used to take groups of students on cultural immersion trips to Rosebud and then to Crow and, and Navajo. But one of the first things that one of my students said to me is, why do they stay here? On Rosebud, the poverty is, is grinding. It's hard to describe what, what you have there. And for kids from suburban America, it was shocking. And they wanted to know what was there. And it took me a little while to figure it out, but one of the answers came from my friend Don Moccasin, who's featured on the cover of the book. He's deceased now. Uh, but he said, they just want to be Indians, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I said, no. You're right. <laughs> How can you argue with that point? And that's what I found. Indians find a simple joy in being Indian. And they express it in so many different ways. You can see it at powwows. You can see it at ceremonies. You can see it uh, in, in different ways. But they have managed to stay Indian and in all its many ways in so many different aspects of their lives, uh, despite what really happened to them over 500 years. And, and to put a, put a finer point on it, I mean, when you say we, we get joy out of being Indian, I, I think to, to put a finer point on it, we enjoy the distinction and right. the autonomy. Right. And so when we, we talk about a sovereignty movement and we, when we talk about pushing back against 
federal programs or jurisdiction or, or any of the assimilation, which was only one chapter of the genocide that Native people have experienced, that's, that's an important part of, of who we are. And, and the, I, the other thing that can't be missed is that our word for, for being Native is ongo ungwe. And it's a word that connects us specifically to land right. and place. So when I hear a non-Native person, or even today, this, there's still, there are lawmakers today that are still questioning whether they should allow the reservation system to, uh, to continue. Oh, right. Like it's their, like they can just legislate us away. And so the, our connection to land and place is another thing that in spite of the, the policy-driven abject poverty that we experience on our territories, and so many of the, uh, so, so much of the, the tough lives that we, that we endure on our native territories, we are still nowhere near ready to give that up. No. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the th first things I learned, as my friend Don Moccasin, again, taught me, I, I went to Rosebud um, after all kinds of attempts to find people to, to work with. And he was driving across the, the prairie uh, in a pickup truck in a snowstorm. Uh, I didn't know where we were going. I didn't know how the heck we were ever going to get out of there. But he was so proud of his reservation. He was so proud of how, how beautiful it was. And one of the things that I found is that the reservations can be very, very beautiful. Yeah, I've seen the worst. I've seen the abandoned cars and, and all the rest of the, the, the dilapidated buildings and, and so on. But I've also seen some of the most beautiful country I've ever, ever seen in my life. And to me, when you look at a place like Rosebud or Pine Ridge out on the prairies, that prairie symbolizes freedom for them. That's there, you know, at one point there were no boundaries for reservations. They roamed across those prairies. That is part of their life and they find it so, so beautiful. And I found places like on Crow, uh, where white people aren't really allowed to go, and we got managed to go, and, and, and uh, just beautiful places. Uh, so there, when you find the, the, the native people that I've, I've come across, they really are, as you say, associated with their land. And that's why they don't want to give it up, and why so many of them are doing so much to get it back. Right. And the land back movement is something I've talked about on the program quite a bit. Yeah. You know, and when, and that's why part of the conversation that I think needs to be had when we talk about the phrases called truth and reconciliation, when they right. talk about residential schools or, or the foster care program, some states have done it. Canada has gone through a process and most of it's, it's pretty flawed, but I think just in the name, it's, it's difficult because there is not a real effort to, fle to flesh out the whole truth. And we can't talk about reconciliation if we aren't going to address the losses that our people endured through residential schools, let's say. I mean, we had a tremendous loss of life through those, those schools and the whole, pro the whole process and policy. We removed massive amounts of our population off of Native territories, oftentimes never to return. Right. There was a loss of our identity and our autonomy. And so I say we need to have real truth and we need to have restoration. Now, I'm, I'm not delusional in believing that we're going to have every acre of land restored to us. I, I don't believe that for, uh, for a moment. <laughs> However, I do believe that we need to have rest restoration of some of our lands. We and we certainly need to have 
full restoration of controls over the lands that we do occupy, which is a whole other issue. And of course, our autonomy. I mean, we have a, we're in a constant battle over jurisdictional issues, who controls what we do on our lands, uh, whether it's being ticketed on our territories for, for a speeding ticket. I'm, like, I was, I was like glad Matt to see you mentioned Matt <laughs> in the book. We're having all of these battles. And, and what isn't understood, and that's why I was so glad to see the title of your book, is that racism is really the, the preeminent reason for all of this stuff. Yeah. And, and, I, and we, we talked before we, we began recording. You said that part of the title made this book even tough to get published. Yes, there, it, there, there were people, the publishers said, we don't want to publish anything quite so controversial. And I knew that if they said that, uh, others were thinking it. But to get the one thing that you know is is important in this book, and I think needs to be said, is that um, you know most Americans don't know much about it, uh, and much about Native history, and especially the fact that you know this whole process, that this whole process of what almost amounted to extermination, began really even before there were white settlers. Sure. Uh, Europeans brought that kind of racism with them, and they, they, they exported it all over the world. I make a point in my book, uh, the Tasmanians were wiped out. The British wiped them out, and the Argentinians wiped out the Indians there. Charles Darwin witnessed that. This goes back 500 years, and it's not something that just happened in the last 100 years or so, or, or during the Indian Wars of the, the 19th century, which is what everybody focuses on, you know, the Wounded Knee and... Uh, Sand Creek and, yeah, and a lot. Sand yeah, Creek yeah. and all that. All that's important, but uh, it goes back, and I think it's, it's been a part of Americans dealing with Native people from the very beginning. They brought this racism with them. They applied it to other parts of the world, but here in North America, it meant extermination. Well, and removal from our from our homelands was a death sentence in many ways. Yes, because it our, is. Because the whole way that we sustained ourselves became challenged. The reduction of our lands, the ability for that land to sustain us. I mean, the, the irony is that part of the reason for the Homestead Act, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, was the belief that, that white folks had that, that Native people had more land than we needed. And we weren't putting it to use anyway. We weren't working the land. Right, right. And the crazy part is... White folks weren't working the land either for the most part. They were so dependent on slavery and, uh, and denying the freedom of, uh, of black people and, and native people that had been enslaved to, to do the work for them in, in much, especially on, in the East. But, but, you know, I think people have a, a misconception about how far West slavery spread and, and that it wasn't just a part of the U.S. chattel slavery process. I mean, the churches were relying... And the amount of native slaves that were used in California on, that were still under Spanish rule yes. was, was significant. And so all of this stuff gets missed in the conversation. Yeah. And as you say, most Americans have very little information. They're not taught this stuff in school. Right. They don't necessarily have an appetite for it. A lot of this pushback from conservatives about critical race theory. They don't want, they don't want their people to learn something that's going to make white people feel uncomfortable or, or bear any guilt for what what transpired not only with with the enslavement of, of black people but, but but the genocide committed against native people yeah and that's that's another tough word to use genocide uh, people don't want to use that word I go through that in the book uh, but if you look at the, the convention the United Nations convention on on genocide 
or even more importantly, the writings of Raphael Lemkin, who coined mm -hmm. it the phrase uh, genocide. Uh, his family died as in the, the Holocaust. You get all the elements of genocide as spelled out in one of those two sources are things that happen to Native people. You talk about removal. You talk about the, the boarding schools uh, removing children from their, their family or forced adoption in the 1950s and 1960s. Removing children, right. That's yeah, one of the elements children. of uh, That's of, one of, of the elements of, of uh, genocide. Sterilization. And sterilization. Enable, anything that really would sort of a, not allow a, a, a people to continue. It doesn't have to be an Auschwitz. No, it don't, it do, and it doesn't, it doesn't have to be mass murder. It doesn't, killing a, a people with that intent is right. one of the definitions. But you're right, creating the conditions that would create the uh, the end of a people that yeah. would that would end uh, end a people's existence is essentially the the more broad and, and general definition of genocide and look when i think about the the five things that are listed in the in, in the international definition it sounds like they were they were writing it based on residential schools and, but of course they weren't they weren't even talking about the united states necessarily when they were no, developing no, this, no. this concept uh, and it it becomes the word that replaces what the international community was already condemning as a war crime, which was denationalization, which was the stripping away of somebody's national character and the imposition of a dominant, uh, of a dominant right. national character yeah. imposed upon them, which is exactly what happened to Native people. The United States was a part of, a part of some of that international debate over, uh, over denationalization, and yet it's all, like nobody ever held up a mirror to them. No, and... Uh... You know, that's why and one of the reasons I, I decided to, to deal with the genocide was to make it clear that, you know, that what happened here was not much different than what ha has happened elsewhere in the world. And that it amounted to genocide, but genocide by a different means, not direct killing as, as it could be the case and was the case, but so many other means as well. For example, you, you know, in many of the battles, that took place for, for 500 years. Uh, they attacked villages, destroyed the food supplies, left people behind perhaps to die of exposure, starvation, and, and when I get into the question of, of declining fertility rates, women who are deprived food tend not to be fertile and not to give birth. You know, that was one of the things that, that was so important. Uh, they killed off everything, you know, in, in places like, in, in battles like uh, right after the, the Dakota hangings, the next year at, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the, the battle, uh, General Sully was responsible for Whitestone Hill in North Dakota, just over the border. I, I've been there. They killed the dogs and horses, too. Yeah. I mean, everything. They just wiped everything off. And the and same could be said of Sand Creek, which was only a few years after that. They did. Wow. They, they killed them off there. Uh, places like the Marias or Marias in, in Montana. But one of the things that, that people don't realize is they, they focus on those kinds of battles. But a lot of the fighting that went on, a lot of the, the attacks that went on were not carried out by the regular army. There were local militias and and, and uh, people who uh, took matters into their own hands. At Wounded Knee, everybody focuses on Bigfoot and uh, how he was going to be shipped back to, to uh, Standing Rock, and, and uh, that was the cause of the, the scuffle that ended up uh, with the massacre. Mm -hmm. That same time, two groups of Lakota, Oglala Lakota from Pine Ridge, were going through separately on their way somewhere, 
and they were massacred by white settlers. Right. People, people don't know anything about, about those kinds of things. Uh, a guy named Fixico, uh, Robert Fixico, wrote a book. He claims that you know, there were actually, in, after the revolution, in the period after the revolution, I forget how many years, 40, 50 years, after, thousands of occur, uh, assaults occurred. Um, and not all necessarily regular army, and I'm not sure about that figure. That sort of scares me a bit. But you know, I think he's probably got a pretty good argument. Well, there was a there's a, a massacre that took place during the Revolutionary War, right in the border between Pennsylvania or what we consider Pennsylvania and Ohio, the Gnadden Hutton or something like the, that. Gnadden Hutton. Yeah, Gnadden Hutton. <laughs> and and that was not just military, and that was essentially just but just private citizens massacring. A really docile group of uh, Lenape who, had, who were basically Christianized already. Yes, they, they weren't were, participating were. in uh, on either side of that of the battle between the the colonies and uh, and Great Britain, and they were clubbed to death. They were hauled into buildings and burned in inside those burned buildings. Burned to death, right? <clears throat> and you know and that. And again, none of this stuff is taught. But but I also, I mean, as much as we talk about the destruction of food and and, and Things like the buffalo, for instance, we also have to acknowledge the Sullivan campaigns by that were authorized by by George Washington yes, to wipe which, everything out. To and and don't accept any pleas for peace. He actually uses the word terror. He says, "Let right, them know the right. terror of their chastisement." So, I mean, how no matter how you slice it, that is a documented use of the American military. The use of terrorism against the people because they wanted to create intergenerational trauma. They said it in the letters. Yeah, and and uh, Sullivan, you know, if you, you read Sullivan's account of it, how many bushels of corn, how many uh, fruit trees, how many uh, things they destroyed, which left, of course, the Seneca malnourished, without, uh, yeah, without malnourished, food. without and, food, and in, in, uh, and so on. Yeah, I I think that Americans don't know the extent. That's what I'm trying to get at of what happened to Native peoples for beginning, like I said, in 500 years. And one of the things that I try to bring out also is the enslavement of, of, of Indians. That's something uh, that, that is not, I mean, the first thing that, that somebody says, well, Native people uh, had, had blacks, had African slaves, and not at the scale that, that anybody really no. can even enumerate. But the fact of the matter is, Native people were enslaved from day one when Columbus landed in the Caribbean. And that enslavement, you know, I've talked about this in the program before, but most people don't realize that those that transatlantic slave trade that brought Africans enslaved to the Western Hemisphere, it was primarily men. Yeah. So the fact is that Native women in South America and North America were being enslaved to serve essentially as brood mares for uh, for the for the Af African captives, yeah, and that's were, just part of it. Women and children were the primary concern of the Indian slave trade. And, you know, it went on. It was more important than the African slave trade uh, up until about 1700. Uh, people don't know about that. You may not know that in Bermuda, there is a colony of Indians, descendants from slaves taken from New England and taken to Bermuda. It's still there. And they well, that whole connection, especially like when we think about Long Island, for instance, uh, the, the Shinnecock and the Puspatuck, there was this... Enslavement of uh, of the Algonquin, those Algonquin uh, peoples sent out to to the the Caribbean. Oh yeah, and then Africans brought in, and so part of that that connection that what what people describe as race mixing between 
between the natives in Long Island and those who, who even survived. I'm forget about the Canarsis and so many others that that are pretty hard to, you know, to, to define at this point. But there was so much of that, and it was that connection between enslaved native people and enslaved uh, Africans yeah. that was part of that uh, that trade. Yeah, it's 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 something that uh, most people don't know much about uh, the enslavement of native peoples here and and in Latin America too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in Mexico, yeah. it was it was working the mines uh, and, and and that sort of thing. Well, and even after so-called Thirteenth Amendment and emancipation, there were native people still being enslaved under Spanish rule on the West Coast. I mean, there, and that would continue. In New Mexico, too. And, yep. In New Mexico and in, in California. All of the Spanish-controlled western part of the uh, of the United, what would be the United Yeah, well, the, what they did was, you know, the 13th Amendment meant very little. If you uh, if you wanted to have Indian slaves, you had Indian slaves. But you could always justify it under, uh, you know, debt peonage, where yeah. you owe money and you're not going to get out until you owe, you pay it off, and which meant, of course, never. Uh, well, and nobody associates the residential schools with enslavement, but let's be clear: those children were worked. Oh yeah, and sure. and and they weren't they were not paid for for their labor, and yeah. you know, and and essentially created the pipeline to to house servants, native native women being used for house servants, and and native men being enlisted in the military service. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. was that was the pipeline that was created by those uh, by those residential schools. So they served as as you know almost a euphemism for 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 slavery in many ways. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, you know, most people, like I said, focus on the, the, the great Indian wars of the 19th century, but they, they started long before that, but nobody pays much attention to it or knows much about it. But one of the things I wanted to bring out in the book is that, you know, once Indians were put on reservations, which was the bulk of natives by, you know, a, a few exceptions, Geronimo, for example, or, or some others, uh, most Parker, of, yeah. yeah, most of them were were on reservations. First of all, people don't realize they were never allowed to leave those reservations. Yeah, they were in prison. They were yeah, like prison camps. 1851 uh, uh, Appropriations Act made it clear that they couldn't leave, and that's what Bigfoot was guilty of. Uh, and not so much the ghost dance, but but it the the killing or the extermination, whatever you want to call it, of Indians continued even though there were no battles. Right. Or very few battles. Most Indians weren't fighting anymore. I mean, that was just not going to happen. Uh, they didn't have weapons. They didn't have the kind of uh, ability to do so. But it continued largely because the reservations, as I, I try to point out in the book, were not places to live, but places to die. At some point, Americans just simply didn't have the stomach to kill them off. To kill, At least yeah, not directly. Not directly, yeah, no. Yeah. There were no, no more battles. And... Uh, you know that that was something Grant didn't like uh, and and talked about or talked against and and other Americans just simply you know they they, they didn't want to uh, see that happen, but what happened on reservations was uh, the gradual decline of the native population beginning in in the 19th century, and continuing into the 20th century as they were deprived water, food, clothing, housing, you name it, anything to sustain themselves. But but I mean to I, I guess. Characterizing it is that that's not what Americans wanted to have happen. I don't think they they could no longer glorify it is what it came down to. Yeah. So there, I think the the tolerance for the massacres and the and the direct killing through the military and and vigilantism 
was not popular, but it didn't end. I mean, the 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 Osage story associated right. with the 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 wealthiest people in the, at the turn of the century were Osage because oil was discovered on the lands that right. they had had been moved to or and they purchased with their uh, with the funds they were paid off to move. And by some accounts, it's thousands of Osage that were that were killed for their for their oil wealth. No, and no. and that's that's a story most people don't know. And of course. You move into missing and murdered Indigenous women. The fact that we have well, women that's... that disappear. You got Gabby Patino who who turns up missing in Wyoming, and it's a national story for two weeks every day in the news. And yet, there were dozens of Native women missing from Wyoming at that same time that right. never was reported right. on. So yep. you have thousands of of people who die, not just in the residential schools. Thousands of Native people dying in in some of these most abusive settings of foster care. The missing and murdered Indigenous women issues. And, and I have to always remind people that as much as we talk about death by cop when it, because of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Native people still, as a percentage of our population, die at the hands of police in both U.S. and Canada at a higher rate than anybody else. Right, yeah. in, only in certain age demographics like that 16 to 21 do are black people killed at a higher rate than, right. than Native people. So the, the killings continue and the justifiable homicides of Native people continue and are rarely prosecuted. I mean, part of the reason that we, we have the missing and murdered indigenous women issue is because there's just not an appetite for, for prosecuting which this, this violence, which is perpetrated uh, to somewhere in the neighborhood of 70% of the, uh, of the offenses, the domestic violence issues that take place and the violence against women are by white men. Right. And native people don't have the recognized or acknowledged right to prosecute white men and so the so it continues and 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 almost it continues unabated and and we, look we get a headline every once in a while we get a commitment from i think trump even uh, we pledged a few million dollars at the issue we see it in the biden administration and with the current uh interior secretary hallen but at the end at the end of the day there's no wholesale attempt to really stem the tide of of this kind of violence against and and it's not just women, but but women. I I think is, it, it, we have a natural tendency, right? I mean, because of male dominant culture, to to feel like women should be protected, women and children should be protected. But it's women, children, you know, it's LGTB uh, Native people, and 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 it's men that are that are killed at a high rate, and and it's not uh, and it's not prosecuted. Yeah, and and uh, especially through the, they're they're really exploited through the criminal justice system. Oh, absolutely. It, it it there's no question that they're they're always uh, you know they're arrested more frequently. They're given they're you know they're denied bail. Uh, they usually are denied some kind of uh, legal representation for one reason or another. The lawyers aren't available or whatever, and they're they're serve longer sentences without parole. So they're, uh, Indians are, are, make up a good portion of state uh, penitentiaries. Well, on the Canadian prisons. side, I think uh, I've read somewhere where 20% of the prison population are native on the Canadian side. I and, think, uh, it, I, I can't remember. I actually have it in my book somewhere. <laughs> but I can't remember the, the exact number, but it's pretty high in America, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, consider, considering that we're less than 1% of the U.S. population, yeah. to be in double digits representation right. in, in prison system is pretty uh, disproportionate. Yeah. And on the other hand, you know, if, if whites abuse uh, Indians, I, I told a story in their book about Rapid City, which, you know, is off, just off the Pine Ridge. And uh, 
Indians, there's a lot of Indians there that live there. Uh, but the kids from Allen, uh, I remember uh, I know the story. The, um, from American Horse School. Uh, Allen, by the way, is the most isolated city in America, <laughs> in, in North America. Uh, and that's not because it's Indian, just because of where it is. It yeah. happens to be there. Uh, but it's a small community. I've been there. And um, the, the kids from there were doing well in their studies, so they decided to take them to an amateur, or not an amateur. Semi-pro. Semi-pro uh, hockey team down in uh, Rapid City. And the people there abused them, threw beer on them. Yeah, the, the luxury boxes above them, the suites that, they, uh, that the, these white folks were in, they were dumping their beer and throwing food at them and you know calling them names. Well, calling them especially prairie nigger. Yeah. Uh, you still hear that out there. First of all, it's offensive. But it's because of their dark skin. Mm -hmm. and, and that's an old term. Indians were, uh, were uh, one of the things that, that, that Native peoples, not just here but elsewhere in the world, were uh, discriminated against one way or another. It was because of the color of their skin. And uh, Indians, you know, uh, dark skin. So why not call them, uh, you know, the same thing you would call a black person, yeah. prairie nigger. You can't say that east of the Mississippi or any place like that, but you can say, still say it, and I've heard it said in uh, South Dakota and Montana. Well, uh, I've, heard it, I've heard it said out east here, too. Not, uh, it's not usually associated with prairie, necessarily. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but, but no, and, and they knew exactly who did these things. So your, your, your point was that the white folks who were abusing these oh, children... Kid. They got away from... Yeah, I got off the topic. Yeah. They got off scot-free. Yeah. I, I, I don't even think there was a fine. If it, was, it might have been a $50 fine or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and I think then it was voided. It, I, I think in the end, yeah, he was fined or some um, you know, minor kind of penalty. But uh, yeah, it didn't didn't last. Yeah, I mean it. So, and on the other hand, Native people get uh, the laws are skewed in such a way. And I'd be remiss if I don't talk about bring it here local. You've got the governor, a Democratic governor of the state of New York, who was able to use state law to freeze the accounts of the Seneca Nation to force them to pay what was supposed to be revenue sharing from their gaming. She literally shut down the nation's business operation. Luckily, she did it on a Friday. So the Senecas had to work through the weekend to, to pay her off. They had to pay this, this ransom that she was extorting out of the Senecas. So they already had to, they had to literally tell people, hold your paychecks, don't cash them because some were already bouncing. You know, vendors were getting their, their checks bounced. And, of course, what she did was perfectly legal. Yeah. So, well. so this is, and, th and that's why using the word racism is so important here. Look, we understand that racism isn't just racial bias. What, what defines racism is, is power. What distinguishes racism from just racial bias is power and the systemic nature of it. So when you can embed racism into the, in, into the, the legal system, not just into lawmaking, but into the judicial system, the political system, when you can, when you can bet it, embed it at all those levels, then you can still continue to commit genocide against Native people without, without even breaking your own laws. Right. And I think that's what's important. I mean, because what, what Kathy Hochul did to the Senecas was legal, although it was clearly uh, unethical and immoral. And she did it because she wanted the money immediately from the Senecas, 
because she was trying to make the stadium deal right, for the bu- right. for the Buffalo yeah, Bills. She wanted to turn around and give four hundred million dollars of that half a billion dollars she squeezed out of the Senecas to the the billionaire owners of the Buffalo Bills, and she wanted to do it in, in a way that it made it look like she could sidestep the normal budgetary process as she was negotiating the state the, the right. state budget, and not like the New York State con- Controller Dinapoli. He didn't make any noise about the fact that she was taking money that, even by the state accounts, should have gone into some part of the state coffers, primarily to be used for education and that kind of stuff. And she said, no, we're not even going to put it there. We're going to put it in the stadium deal. And nobody checked. Look, and I'm glad some news accounts um, called her out, but they never talked about the systemic racism tied to to the means by which she was able to expedite squeezing that money well, out of the Well, one reason she was able to do that, and, and I, I thought about that at the time, is that you know, so many people are jealous of the Indians in their casinos. Even though, even here in Seneca territory, 40% of the Seneca still live below the poverty line. Yeah, uh, they, they, they uh, 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 resent uh, the Indians. You don't pay taxes. You know, uh, we have all these benefits. They yeah, say, you they have claim. all these yeah. benefits, and and now you and in the casinos, uh, live you know sort of tax free, scot free, uh, don't have any kind of regulations, and that's that's of course not true. And furthermore, you know, yes, the Seneca do pretty well with their 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 casinos. More power to them, but you know, if you go to casinos like the one on Crow, it's no no longer exists. You know, I've seen casinos that are trailers. Yeah, they, they, they aren't exactly, you know, um, money printing machines. And, no. and, and in fact, the, the Senecas, look, they struggled through the pandemic and, uh, oh, yeah. and they had to, you know, figure out how they were going to get. And in, in the midst of trying to get through that, they're still being squeezed by the state. The, the New York State has squeezed $2 billion out of the Senecas. I mean, that's not a lot of money in, in, by state numbers. But for the Seneca people, that's a lot that's of money. A, that's, a lo- that's a lot of money. By when yeah. we think about my daughter, my daughter was on vacation in Aruba. She was on vacation, and there were people there that were talking about Indians getting rich off of casinos. And uh, well, and, and I hear and some how people, they resented it because they didn't pay taxes. Well, and, and some people look at it as if the casinos were given to us in, uh, as some sort of reparations, and th- and that's simply not the case. This gets back to some of what your point your point of the book is: is that when you, we say we remain, we're still fighting for the rights that we never surrendered. Gaming was not a right that was given to us. That's one that, frankly, the Supreme Court say, look, you don't have the right to tell them they can't do it. I mean, he, the Supreme Court didn't legalize gaming. The Indian Gaming Regulatory Act didn't legalize gaming. If anything, it put handcuffs on us. There was an acknowledgement yeah. that, that the United States and the, <clears throat> and the individual states had no right to interfere with Native people because we never gave them that right to do it. And this is the, de- the, the debate that we have all the time when we talk about sovereignty because as the states and the United States and Canada, for that matter, try to impose their will upon us, we, I mean, we call it the very simple, the very simple question, where did you get that right from? Yeah. It gets, that, gets back to, to Matt fighting, a, uh, our buddy Matt Hill fighting a, a speeding ticket. Yeah. <laughs> he asks a simple question, where did you get the jurisdiction? And where did we give it to you? Not yeah. just where did you claim it? Because when we, we talk about trying to remain autonomous, and and you know and and distinct, we still lay that that foundation on the fact that we never agreed to be made U.S. citizens. You tried, you passed a law that declared it. Yeah. But we didn't necessarily we we weren't uh, suing you for that right, and we know that the the Fourteenth Amendment didn't make Native people U.S. Nope. citizens. Um, the the 
the Indian Citizenship Act didn't do it. And in fact, even in 1934, when they passed the Indian uh, Reorganization Act, they once again tried to redefine us. But today, there are still examples of the United States saying, yeah, well, if you weren't under U.S. jurisdiction in 1934, you can't even... Uh, take land into trust land. Yeah. So they're acknowledging that even after three attempts that some people claim were a part of trying to force us into U.S. citizenship, that that some that those attempts in many ways remain incomplete and, and they and they were not fully successful. No, and you know through your travels, there's an awful lot of native people who who really put this idea of being a US citizen secondary to their yeah. to their native yeah. Uh, autonomy. Yeah, they, they do. If if they claim it at all, uh, yeah, they you know they 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 do get their social security checks uh, as they're entitled to, to, but they don't necessarily consider themselves uh, American citizens. But but again, I, I think getting to this conversation and understanding that that the racism that really was behind residential schools and massacres and removal and everything else, so, much of it still exists today, and I think that's what I find problematic. Look. I'll give you an example, and and I and I have to beat up on on the local NPR station as a part of this. Look, after what took place in May of this year for the killing on the east side of Buffalo, where a white supremacist traveled from downstate, right. you know, or, or the southern tier came to came to Buffalo specifically to kill black people, the local NPR station WBFO made a point to do a a series, a, a new program called right. What's Next. And they they talk, and it's all about racism. Ross John, who was a counselor, sitting counselor at the time, and I met with WBFO two weeks before this happened, because we were trying to again pitch this idea that that there's a almost a an aversion to the mainstream media, including public radio, to identifying our experience as victims of racism, and we thought we made headway. But the phone never rang after May 14th. And, and when I pressed them, they actually stopped receiving my emails. And I wasn't, like, beating them up. But now they did put a couple of Native people on that series, but never to talk about racism. They had somebody from the Native American Music Awards. They had uh, uh, Terry Jones, a filmmaker, who came on to talk about a film uh, festival that he was involved. But they never had that conversation about the systemic racism that Native people experienced in Western New York. Well, you don't. If you if you look, I I make a point in the book. If you 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 look at statistics in the United States, I don't care which statistics, housing, uh, healthcare. There's always there there there's blacks, whites, blacks, Hispanics, other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Indians are lumped in with the other. Rarely are they singled out as, uh, you know, for example, high unemployment or high infant mortality or all the other things that, uh, that, that are true on places like Pine Ridge and uh, Rosebud and, and so on. Uh, those things, are, they're just simply not counted. And I think that, that that's true in terms of uh, police brutality and statistics like that. Nobody really pays much attention to that. And, and it, gets, it gets swept under the historical rug like so many of the things that have happened to Native people. Well, and I've, I've played a, a pretty big role in uh, the debate over school mascots, for instance. Right, um, right. The, the, the statewide ban that was just issued last November, I was a big part of that. I don't know if you're familiar with no, that. No, I don't. I was, I was with Al Parker. Yeah. Al, Al was my good friend. Well, so. and, and Al and I worked together yeah. when, when we got Lancaster, uh, Lancaster School here in Western New York to change. 
Um, Al, you know, Al was uh, had he, he called me and asked me to be a part of the committee. That, but I kept working on this for for years, and I pushed my old high school, which is on the eastern side of the, the state, in Cambridge, New York, which is out near right. Saratoga area, and that fight turned into a petition filed with the New York State Department of Education. Now, I knew people who wanted to press the state legislature to pass uh, a law. My experience with either the executive via the governor or the state legislature has never been very smooth. But when I, what I saw was an opportunity with the, uh, with the Department of Education. I, I think they have the authority to do this, and they just may need a little bit of a push. And as it turns out, I actually had a conversation with the commissioner of education, Dr. Betty Rosa. And she said that was their strategy, too. They just needed a, the right school to make the right argument to, to assert this thing, and that's what they, that's what they did. But, but what we experience when we go into one of these predominantly white communities to say, look, we just don't want you to use us as mascots. You know, I, I, I post up a meme every once in a while that I wrote up that said, what's even more racist than, than white people using Native people for mascots is the response when you tell them that it's wrong. Yep. And, you know, and this really cuts to, to a lot of the issue and about not being able to see Native people in the same way that you would see um, anti-Semitism or racism you know, perpetrated against Black people. That stuff is easier for people to understand and grab onto. They understand that Blackface is wrong, but is Redface wrong? Right. I mean, when you put them side by side, you can say, well, of course it's wrong, but but, but we're doing it for sport and for entertainment. Well, so was Al Jolson doing it for entertainment. But this is, there's a line that the general population still struggles with right. when it comes to acknowledging the, the ongoing mistreatment and the ongoing racism that Native people experience. Um, and it's almost like we're, we're going to measure it differently somehow. Yeah, I, I was, by the way, at Lancaster, Al Parker got me to speak uh, at there, and I, my daughter was with me, and we uh, suffered a, a little abuse. Um, but yeah, uh, there, there is this kind of line that's drawn when it comes to Indians, that they're some, somehow different. And that one of the things I tried to do in the book, that's what I was really getting at, uh, is that, you know, I wanted to make it clear that the treatment of blacks, uh, African Americans, is not any different than what happened to Native people historically. So, you know, I, I, uh, I wanted that to be the, the that, that people to see the connection, that racism is racism. It doesn't really matter who it's aimed at, it's, it's still racism. And, and, it, and it's, it's too bad that we have to constantly analogize certain things that happen to Native people with say the the Holocaust, the Jews uh, Jews experience, or what Black people experience, but but it, it's like the general public understands the Jewish Holocaust. They understand Jim Crow and you know the, the lynchings and so much of what what native, what Black people experience. Although there's an irony in the fact that um, there was a great book written about the Osage, by the way, right? The I Killers know that. of the I'm Flower the, Moon. Um, yeah. I'm yeah, I, I haven't read it, but I'm familiar with it, right? And I had the author on my, on my show, um, and, and I asked him, how is it you covered the Osage murders, and yet 50 miles down the road in Tulsa, you never even mentioned the fact that the massacre that took place you know, in, at Black Wall Street in Tulsa. And there's a connection between the racism. And he said, you know, that's, he, he just told me that was a good question. He goes, I don't, I don't know why, because he, he did mention... In, in part of the book, um, 
a couple of incidents of racism towards black people, but he never mentioned Tulsa. And so one of the things that I try to do with this show is to break down this siloing of the right. atrocities that Native people experience. I try to put context to it. I want people to know that Abraham Lincoln was the president during Sand Creek Massacre and the, and the mass execution at, the, uh, at Mankato, Minnesota. I want people to understand who the president was or, or, or who all the presidents were during the, the, the legacy of residential schools. I, you know, in much the same way that you are talking about the scope and the scale, I want people to understand the scope and the scale of, of all of the treatment, including residential schools. Most people don't realize that these things existed for 200 years. They, I mean, they began, oh, yeah. I mean, they began th through funding the church-run residential schools first um, before it was a, a federal program and a state program. So, I mean, you, you go back to, to the early 1800s when the first... Actually, uh, the 1700s. Well, I'm, I'm saying legislatively. Oh, legislatively, um, they, yeah. They, the, the, what do they call it? The, the Civilization Fund Act of, yeah. of like 1813 is 1819 what... 1819 or something it, like yeah, that. Something yeah, something that it was where... And, and it goes on and continues. So when you understand that we're not talking about my grandparents only, we're talking about five or six generations of Native people who experienced these, these, the atrocities that these residential schools represented. And the legacy of that, like so much of the other forms of genocide that Native people experienced, was depopulation, loss of identity, loss of autonomy, the, the overbearingness of, uh, of U.S. law and U.S. culture. And, you know, I, I, I sometimes have to bring this up, and I don't know if, you, if, if you've experienced this at all, but even our own people, because of the loss of identity, we actually deferred to Hollywood when uh, for some of uh, for some of our own cultural reclamation, uh, there, there were Mohawks in New York City that were working the high steel. That when they got together, when they wanted to do native events in the city, they were wearing like Plains Indian headdresses. The folks who went down to uh, to declare war against the Axis powers in World War II, they were wearing they weren't wearing the stoas that we know are traditional okay. to the Haudenosaunee. They went down there looking like Plains Indians. Why? Because that's what they thought they had to look like. You get told that there's something wrong with being an Indian. Well, and, and when you know that there, there's always been this kind of strange relationship, uh, almost a, like a backhanded compliment that, uh, that Americans had towards the, the idea of the noble savage, right? The, the noble savage is something that American, the American public loved. They loved reading about Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse and Geronimo. They loved reading about it. But they didn't, still didn't like Native people. I, I talk about L. Frank Baum, who wrote those right. two genocide editorials uh, after the death of Sitting Bull. And he said, oh, they'll, they'll speak in later ages of, of the grand kings of the forest and plain. But in the meantime, let's exterminate these, these yeah, wretched curves. It's time for them to go. Yeah, and, uh, we need, and he called for our he an extermination and annihilation. I yeah. mean, and that, he wasn't alone in that. Oh, no. I, I point out in my book, all the presidents of the 19th century were like that. Uh, but, you know, all the way into the 20th century, they, the presidents were uh, speaking about uh, Indians, in some cases outright extermination, and others like Garfield, uh, well, they're just going to vanish, and, and, and we won't know them anymore, and uh, we'll, we'll, not, we'll read about them in history. Everybody was like that, and I think that one of the things that racism is, is so important, and this is something I try to bring out in a book, it's not that black kids can't drink out of the same water fountain. 
It's what that telling that black kid about himself. Right. It's saying that he's inferior. The same thing for Indians. If you can't go off the reservation, there's something wrong with you. Right. If you're in a boarding school, I, I write about that in my in um, in the book on on Thomas Indian School. There must be something wrong. Yeah, with you're you. taught you're taught to hate yourself, or that you're here that you are somehow mentally handicapped. And so that that kind of uh, that kind of result of racism has has not been lost. You'll see it, for example, in uh, what I talk about in the book about school children. Indian children fail. You know, at some point they hit a wall. That's yeah. what I talk about. And they, they're told that they're, they're, they're not as smart or whatever it is, uh, whatever the thing is, but there's something wrong with them. They're doomed to be a failure, so why the heck study? Exactly. Yeah, why the heck stay in school? Uh, drop out when I can, get involved in gangs or drugs or whatever. Uh, at least that's something to do. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I mean, and, and that's, I mean, this is the, the, the condition that exists on so many native territories. And... Um, and this is what we this is what we fight against, Keith. I want to tell you um, we're just about out of time, so I I want to I want to thank you for coming in. I want to thank you for this book. Uh, and again, the book is We Remain: Race, Racism, and the Story of the American Indian by Keith R. Burke. I I wish folks would get the book. I hope that people will get the book, huh. and I look forward to um, to having conversations with people who read the book. Yeah, because I think you know, I, I think. You're you're one of the few that I've had <laughs> I've met that have read it. But <laughs> well, I think it's it's important that that people not just read a book but discuss it uh, because I think ten people can read the same book and take certain things away from it. And until you discuss it and you say, oh yeah, I, I forgot that part of it, or they don't they don't t have the same takeaways. And until you engage people with a conversation over uh, something that has been well thought out like this book, you don't really get the full value of it. Um, I know a lot of people just like to read and keep it to themselves. But I think anytime you can engage somebody in something that you've read, um, and, and of course it's a real thrill for me to engage the, the, the writer of the book and well, so. I'm glad to, to, to be here. I'm glad you go. Uh, and and, we, and as I said after, after your, your first book, um, I really would like to have you come back, whether you write another book or not. I, there, I think there's conversations that I think um, that you offer an insight as a non-Native person who has traveled so much around Native territories. I think um, gleaning some of your insights is as important to us in, in terms of having the conversation. Yeah, and sure. I would like to bounce some of what, um, uh, you know, some of the things that, that, that I deduce from our experience today off of you and, and know with your background in history, uh, you know, perhaps that offers some historical perspective to what we experience today. I'd be, I'd be happy to anytime you uh, want to. You know where I, you can find me. Yes, and, I do. Uh, you know, just check with Matt. He'll uh, he'll he'll bring me in. Uh, but uh, no, I'd I'd be happy to come in and talk about uh, th those kinds of things. I am uh, going to go back out to uh, Navajo and Hopi in May, and I'll probably go to Crow Fair again in August. Uh, they, they, it's it's a great great tradition that I've I've been you know sleeping in the teepee and well tra travel well and be safe and. Uh, I look forward to having you coming back. And, All right. And anytime you have a story to tell, whether you write it or not, I'd love to have you come back and hear your story. All right. Thank you. All right. Again, that's uh, Keith Burrick, uh, author of We Remain, Race, Racism, and the Story of the American Indian. Um, I want to thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, please, uh, again, support WBAI and WPFW. The pledge line for WBAI is 212-209-2950. Uh, or go online to give to WBAI.org 
And if you're listening in Washington, D.C., the pledge line is 202-588-9739. And the website is uh, to donate is wpfwdc.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.